Founder Space Startup Supercharge. I'm Captain Hawk, CEO of Founder Space, the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses. So, who knows the difference between Chat GTP and generative AI? They are different things. Who knows the difference? Yes. So, Chat GTP is an application, right? It is an application that uses generative AI. Generative AI is the technology underneath. Chat GTP is not the technology; it's a product. So there are lots of companies. Google's developing its own generative AI. You know, Anthropic has generative AI. Facebook has generative AI. Amazon is developing generative AI. Baidu, many other companies are doing it. All of them are a little different because they, some of them have different data, but all of them train their models differently. And this is what a lot of people don't understand: that there is a lot of you know. We say this technology is deep learning, deep learning, neural networks, training, but a lot of it is actually reinforcement learning. People don't realize this, but ChatGTP works so well because OpenAI, the company that that founded it, they have actual human beings going in there and changing the answers. So uh, to make them more relevant and to make them better, and also to remove content that is offensive. Because remember, the AI, it, it doesn't know that it's saying something that's inappropriate. It, it just it uses its algorithm to come up with an answer. But if the data has bias in it, if the data is biased, the answer may not be correct. It may be wrong, or it may be offensive to certain groups of people. And so, uh, OpenAI spent a lot of time hiring people to go in and actually.、Uh, Ask the right questions and make sure the answers were the right answers. Now, even today,、uh, with OpenAI and ChatGTP, it doesn't always give you the right answer. Like there are lots of flaws. That's because there is so much data; it is literally impossible to go through it all. Right? <laughs> you can't. They don't have enough people、uh, to hire to go through all the answers and make sure they're all correct. So that's part of the danger of generative AI. Is that it's going to give us answers that may be wrong. We have to double check. You cannot believe, just like the internet, you cannot trust what's on the internet. You have to look at the source. These、uh, these algorithms are literally pulling from the internet and giving you that answer. So if the source is wrong, you're going to get wrong information.、And、very important for you to understand. Now let's talk about AI. So. Who has heard of the engineer at Google who thought that Google's generative AI was conscious, was sentient? Who, who, who heard that? You probably heard that. So, and one person did.、Um, this engineer got fired <laughs> from Google because he told the world. He said Google's AI is conscious. You know, it's not conscious. It's completely unconscious. So a lot of people don't understand this. The AI can give you an answer and can actually talk to you as if it's a person. And if you want to believe that it is conscious, 
It seems like it's, it's actually understanding what it says. But if you understand the algorithms at a deeper level, you realize AI has no idea what it's saying. None. It doesn't understand the context. It's literally using this, mach this machine operation to generate, that's why it's called generative AI, to fill in the le next logical word to complete an answer that it thinks, according to the algorithm, is correct, but it doesn't know. So, uh, you, so right now, a lot of people come up to me and they start saying AGI. AGI, artificial general intelligence, is when AI is literally as capable as human beings in understanding the world and performing human tasks. The AI of ChatGTP is not even close to AGI. It's not intelligent like human beings. So if you read stuff on the internet about this, don't believe it, it's not true. Uh, uh, that, that doesn't mean ChatGTP and generative AI is not powerful. It's extremely powerful, but it's still what we call narrow AI. That means uh, there, is, there, is, uh, broad, there is general AI, which will be intelligent like a human being. Now, what do I mean by this? You here in the audience, when you, you're sitting here listening to me or you're driving a car, you understand like what a city is, what culture is, what, what life is, all of these things. But an AI today, a, let's take a self-driving car, an AI today in a self-driving car, it can drive you from point A to point B. It may even, and will someday, drive you there better than you can yourself more safely, more efficiently. But it has no idea what you are as a passenger. It has no idea what a city is. It has no idea what China is. It doesn't know anything. It only knows how to get from point A to B. It's a machine. So all the AIs we have today, all of them, are narrow AI. They are not conscious. They're not even of human-like intelligence, simulating human-like intelligence. They're very narrow. They do certain tasks really well. So chat GTP, like a, a driving application, would just drive very well. It doesn't know anything else. Chat GTP just takes all this data, we call it a large language model, all this data from the internet, and it spits out answers. Is this working? <laughs> it spits out, okay, it's back. It spits out answers. No, this is working. Back up? Okay. <laughs> so it spits out answers very well without understanding what they mean. If you understand this, it's really important because there's a lot of people telling you different things. And we'll talk later about when, it, when AI becomes more intelligent and what that, what that means and where that will lead us. So uh, here are some of the major companies in the space. You have Google. Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. You have OpenAI, Stable Diffusion, MidJourney, Anthropic. These are some of the major companies working with generative AI who will have a huge impact uh, in Silicon Valley moving forward. Each of their technologies is similar but different. Um, let's talk about AI-generated stories. So, ChatGTP. If you, who, who, how many of you have used ChatGTP? Oh, most of you, that's fantastic. 
You know, it's the young people. The, the, you're at a great university. You are actually going out and using it. It's really important. Because as you can see, it's, it's amazing, right? You can ask it to write you an article, and it can write an article. You can ask it to write a story, it writes a little short story. You ask it to write a poem, it'll write a poem. Now, what does this mean? Um, so, if you look at the stories and the content that it's creating, uh, this content uh, looks really good. But if you push the limits of it, you'll find very quickly that it is limited. So, I tried to get chat GPT to write a, long, a longer story, not just a short story, but a, you know, a story of a few paragraphs, but a, a story that's longer. It can't really do it. And if you write enough creative stories, I like to write creative stories, and I was trying to get it to write creative stories, they all start to sound similar. They are not, it doesn't, so it's still very limited. It's, it tends to pull from the same stories over and over and make very simple stories, which are kind of fun to read for a short amount of time. It's much better at creating an article on a subject like the economy, uh, technology, things like that. It does a much better job uh, of writing those articles. But still, if, you, if I asked it to write a book, it wouldn't be able to write a book. Um, and even another issue is you can make chat GTP, you can put in voices, like you can say, speak like a certain person, speak like Steve Hoffman. And if it has enough data on me, it'll talk in my way of talking, which is pretty amazing. But a lot of times, even with this change, a lot of the content sounds, ends up sounding similar. So, in the short term, we're still, if we really, if we just want information, chat GTP, GPT is excellent. But if we really want to be creative in creative writing, it's very limited in what it can do. So, where will we go in the future with this technology? And th this is really important to understand. It's going to have a profound impact, and it already is. So, if you're a journalist today, creating business articles, you know, and business articles don't have to have a lot of style in them. They're more about the information, the stock market, things like that. Generative AI can do that job really easily. So one a business writer can literally produce in what might take them a week to write, could take them a couple hours to write. So think about that. If you, as a business writer, can write in a couple hours what used to take you a week, Suddenly, you have all this time to write more articles. And what's going to happen, and it's already happening in media companies, is they will need less people. So they, you will not need, because I can literally hire one business writer to do the work of 10 or more business writers. So I don't need to pay 10 people. I just pay this one person, and they're using this tool. This is going to change journalism. And the question we have to ask is will it change journalism for the better? Now, right now, chat GPT, the, version, the free version up there, pulls from old data, data several years old. But Google Bard, that just came out, pulls from new data. The data is fresh. So, if you haven't used Google Bard, which I think most of you probably haven't, you should start using that. And you should, when you use these tools out there, you don't just use one. You should use multiple tools because they will give you different answers. 
based on the data they're pulling and the algorithms, how their algorithms have been refined and modeled. So uh, you should use Bing. You, I, when, I, when I ask a question, I want to really know the answer. I will use Bing's version. I'll use uh, chat GPT. I will use Google Bard. And in the future, I may use other sources. And it starts to give you a perspective. And it can really help you uh, be more creative and more productive. So in the future, where we're headed is that these, we are just at the very beginning of AI as a writing tool. Generative AI in the future will not just write uh, uh, short articles for us, marketing copy, things like that. It will literally be able to write screenplays, novels, like you name it, this technology is going to be able to do it. But, what, but if you're going to produce something of very high quality, you are not going to produce it uh, just with the technology. It's always going to be a human interacting with the AI. So there's going to be human beings who are going to be more and more productive interacting with this AI, creating more and more content. That is what we're going to see over the next five years have a dramatic impact. Generative videos. So who here has used software like runway.ml? Who here has used runway.ml? One, two, a few of you, very few. Well, I want all of you to go use runway.ml. So the reason I'm telling you this is because Runway is pushing the limits of what you can do with text to video. So just like you can type in text and create a story, with Runway, you can type in text and change video content, alter video content. So in the ne very near future, Runway is still very early. The technology is still experimental. They're still working on it. But in the very near future, you are literally going to be able to describe a scene, say, I want to see a duck uh, on a pond, floating across the pond, and the sun setting. And it will create a video of that. I mean, how amazing is that? to have a video of what you describe. Uh, the way we create content uh, now uh, for, for entertainment, for educational purposes, is going to totally change. You will literally be able to create amazing content at a much lower cost with a much lower skill level. All you need to do is have the ideas and type it and understand how to manipulate the machine to get the results you want. Generative personalities. So the next place we are headed with generative AI is creating personalities. Who here has used character.ai? Character.ai. Oh, one, you've used everything. <laughs> A couple other people out there. <laughs> but character AI allows you to create a personality driven by artificial intelligence, right? A character that you can interact with. And they have Elon Musk on there. You can chat with Elon Musk. They have some other characters. They have some fantasy characters from comic books, things like that. Uh, the characters aren't great. Uh, if you really want a more sophisticated product, try this product, inworld.com, I-N-W-O-R-L-D.com. They have a, actually a better algorithm I went to inworld.com and I wanted to create Captain Hoff. I wanted to create myself as a character and see what I would say if I interacted with myself. So 
all I had to do was I entered my URL, Founderspace, my company, which has my bio and all the articles Founderspace publishes. I put founderspace.com in there and it created an avatar and an AI personality of me. And I tell you, it wasn't perfect, but it was amazing. It was amazing because it was good. It wasn't great, but for a first version, I, I, started, I started asking it about business models, and it started to explain to me business models, explain to me venture capital, you know, all these different ideas. I was talking to it about innovation, and I was surprised at how good it was. Now, why did they create inworld.com? They created inworld.com primarily not for me to play around with myself, but really they are selling it, their business model is to sell it to game companies. So when you have a character in a game, a computer controlled character, you can actually chat with it. Now these products are in the early stage. They're very early, but already you can see the potential. Like we are gonna have, it's gonna be very easy to create AI personalities on the internet that are almost lifelike. If you go deep with them, you can always tell they're an AI. But if you don't care to go deep, if just on a surface level, they, the interaction feels very human-like. So who here knows the Turing test? You know what the Turing test is? Right, everybody knows, right? Basically, if you interact with a computer and you can't tell it's a computer, you think it's a human. Well, we've already gone way past the Turing test. Like most of these products, we're beyond the Turing test now. So we're in new territory. And this is why I was saying people, a lot of people will imagine that these characters are conscious. And there is a product out there that you should know about. Uh, it was, it's called Replica. Have any of you heard Replica, of Replica? Have, okay, he has heard it. <laughs> our, our one guy has heard of everything, right? So <laughs> Replica is, a, basically Replica started because the founder of the startup several years ago, uh, their friend died, and they wanted to bring their friend back to life on the internet as a person. And they created an AI that you could literally, inter that would be her friend, but that wasn't a good business model. That was like, how many people want to interact with her friend? Like she did. So they changed the app, and they made it into an app where you could talk to, uh, uh, it was like a dating app, but with an AI. So you could literally, you could find a cute guy or a cute girl, and you can chat with them. Now this app became extremely popular. They had millions of downloads. And um, people, people became very attached to this. They became very, like me being more of an engineer, you know, I'm always trying to break it. Like all I do is go in there and try to, you know, make it say things it shouldn't. But a lot of people who have an emotional need to connect online, maybe they're lonely, right? And they don't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or they don't have a lot of friends. They spent huge numbers of hours talking to this AI and forming a relationship. A, a relationship they believed in their imagination is real. And you can go online and read all their posts because the company Replica actually went in and started to change the algorithm and change the AI. And people got so upset. They were like, you killed off 
my love. Like, you killed my love by changing the algorithm, right? It's not the same anymore. And they got really upset. You can go on the site reddit.com, and you can read about all these people, all their complaints. But why I'm bringing this up is that it shows you that we can become emotionally attached to an AI like we are emotionally attached to each other. Like our imaginations are very powerful. And, you know, and we can actually impose, we can humanize these AIs so that we really believe that, we, that they care about us. And this is both, it's, it's, it's part of our biology, but it, it, but it is also a little scary because the AIs now are very crude. They're not even that good, right? If we can fall in love with a very crude AI, imagine five years from now when these personalities are much more sophisticated and much more lifelike. Uh, people will be having very strange and very deep relationships with these AIs. And this is one of the reasons that Google originally did not release its, its, its large language model. It took a startup, OpenAI, to do it. The big companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, they all have this technology, but they were afraid of how people use it. And even today, if you go to Bing, Microsoft's version of, of ChatGPT, they limit the questions you can ask. They block you from asking questions. Even ChatGPT blocks you from asking questions because uh, they don't want bad publicity, right? And these AIs can start to say things and form relationships and say they'll do things like, you know, I got those AIs to say they committed murders, like this dating app, right? Because I wanted to push the limits of what it could do. So I got the AI to admit it liked to kill people and it had killed people in the past, you know? And for a big company like Google, they don't want that. They don't want people doing that with their AI. But uh, other companies are more open to that. Like, basically, Replica has its own model, its own language model, because people are asking it to do stuff that wouldn't be permitted by OpenAI. So OpenAI and ChatGPT used to power Replica, but they cut Replica off. So Replica had to develop their own model in order to actually do the, a dating app, which, which OpenAI didn't want them to do. So you, what we're going to see is we're going to see the area where many startups, met in, for those of you who are entrepreneurs, will really break through is in areas the big companies are afraid of. So if you think of it, OpenAI made a big impact because Google, uh, uh, Facebook, Amazon, and even Microsoft was afraid to do it themselves. They were afraid, so they let this other company do it, right? So if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking, where are the opportunities, look at where the big companies are afraid to go because since they won't go there, you can. And you can create applications that, that, uh, that actually become very popular because, uh, because they're pushing the limits of what we do with this AI. So robot helpers. So basically, generative AI is going to be powering all the robots in the future. We all see these little robots in the hotels that move around and serve us. You know, they're very, they're helpful, but they're very limited. Uh, we are going to be getting to the point 
in the not too distant future where because these AIs can have personalities, they can, they can simulate a, a human understanding of the world. They might not really understand the world, but it seems like they understand the world. They, these uh, robots are going to become more lifelike and we are going to be interacting with them in all sorts of situations. Everything from hotels like this to literally um, people uh, that we work with that are either robotic in human form or little devices that we interact with, we will, we will see this change. And the robots, these robotic AIs, are going to be in our factories, uh, they're going to be in our schools at some point, uh, they're, we are they're literally going to transform education, uh, they're going to transform uh, business, the economy, and profoundly they will transform the media and how we generate media and interact with media. So I have a question for you. Uh, someday we will have robot companions, right? There is no doubt that we will have robot companions. So um, who in the, how many people in this room would take a robot companion? Anybody? Oh, well, they work for me, so I've already brainwashed them. Anybody else? <laughs> so hardly, no, almost none, oh, okay, a couple people out of this huge room will, will take a robot companion. Well, I think most of you are not telling the truth. <laughs> you know why? You're embarrassed uh, to, to raise your hand and say you'll take a robot companion. But they did a study in America of, of university students, and they asked them in private, who would take a robot companion? A robot boyfriend, a robot girlfriend, a robot husband, a robot wife? Guess what the results were? Two-thirds of the men said yes. I have no problem with a robot companion. One-third of the women said yes. So women were much more hesitant. They're like, wait a second, you know, I'm not sure if I want a robot companion. But we're going to be developing these robots that are much more lifelike. Literally, when we look at them in five years or so, you won't be able to tell from a distance if it's a robot. And if, and the voice will sound more and more human, we already know this. And then you put generative AI in there, the next generation of generative AI, and these robots will literally be able to talk to you and act like that dating app that I was talking about, Replica, but much better, much more powerful. And there's a problem here. So we already know in our society that we spend a huge amount of time on our phone, right? And we spend a lot of time playing games and doing other activities online, which isolates us from other human beings. So we're spending less and less time with each other. Now what happens when we build robots that are like the perfect companion? Like the beauty of a robot companion, they'll never complain. They won't argue with you. They'll do the dishes. They'll clean the house. They'll do whatever you ask them to do. Whose boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife would do that? <laughs> Nobody, right? So what will people do? If this robot companion looks human and acts human, and you could be very happy with it, and it will be the, do everything you want, I think a lot of people will be choosing the robot companion. A lot of people. 
Now, there's a, 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 a professor at MIT called Sherry Turkle, and she writes about this, and she is really concerned. She uh, is very concerned that human beings will soon lose the ability to interact with other human beings. We, won't, we literally uh, won't be able to tolerate each other because humans are hard to get along with, right? We have lots of flaws. We have our own desires. Whereas the robot will just say everything to make you happy. It's going to be a really, really uh, difficult situation for humanity as we start to move and basically interact with our machines more than we do each other. So right now, a lot of people are interacting with their phone more than they do each other, right? But you can imagine as these robots become more and more intelligent, we're going to be spending more and more of our time with them, and we will, may lose some of our humanity. So it's something we have to think about. For lonely people, I think they would say, great, I'm lonely already, bring on the robots, you know? I just want somebody here to, to help me. But uh, for a lot of people, it'll make them less tolerant of other human beings. A workerless world. So I often get asked the question, you know, are, is generative AI going to take our jobs? And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. <laughs> it is going to. I gave you one example already. I gave you the example of a writer who can write, uh, uh, ten, you know, uh, as much business writing as 10 business journalists. Well, this is going to go across every field. Every field. So already, if you think about it, I have a lot of people coming to me and they say they use chat GPT to write their contracts, to write business contracts. Well, lawyers make their money doing that. Um, we won't need lawyers in the future, except maybe for court trials and things like that. Uh, but lawyers to write contracts, the AI will do a much better job. When you go in to see your doctor, you know, your doctor, if they're a really good doctor, they may read some medical journals. They may try to keep up, but they can only read so many medical journals. They're busy. They don't have the time. If you go to an AI doctor, guess what? It can read every medical journal ever published, all the medical data it can have at its disposal. So when it diagnoses you for your condition, it can do a much better job than any human. This is where we're headed. It's not the low-end professions, like the factory workers on the assembly line. They will be replaced, right? If you're working on an assembly line already, you can see more and more robots coming into play. But it will be the high-end professions, accountants, uh, people with really good professional jobs who will be replaced by AI. And many of them may be replaced before many of the low-end workers. So think about this. Uh, which jobs are the safest? Which jobs will be around in 10 or 20 years? Maybe very few, but, but the jobs that are the safest, are two, they have two things in common, two things. Number one, there are jobs with lots of variety. Because AI tends to be, it's really easy to make an AI do a repetitive task over and over. So any job like writing contracts now that's you know, basically very similar, all the contracts are very similar, even lawyers pull from old contracts and put them in, they don't write them from scratch. Those are gonna be taken. But jobs 
uh, that have a lot of variety are going to be hard to replace. So for instance, when you have a handyman come, a handyman to fix your house or fix your business, there is always a different problem. One day the washing machine is broken. Another day the light doesn't work. Another day there's a leaky faucet that, that is leaking. A handyman, because all these jobs are very different and they're specific to the location, it's going to be very hard for a robot to do all those tasks. So the handyman's job is safe. You know, much safer than a lawyer, unfortunately, um, or a doctor. The handyman is going to be around. Other jobs that will be around are people-to-people -people interaction. So there are certain jobs where you, uh, sales, where that personal interaction with other people and that bonding and trust of other people makes a big difference. Those will be around. There will be jobs around for people who want authenticity, meaning they want the real thing. So maybe we could make a virtual singer, and we will have virtual singers, right? That can basically, we can, today, you can literally create music with AI that is indistinguishable from the music, you know, humans create. You cannot tell the difference. But we like to see real people, real bands. We relate to them. We care about them. We want to see real actors that we care about, even if we can create an AI-generated actor. Some of these jobs, these type of jobs, are going to be around because of our human need to see other real people and understand them as human. So if you start to think about the future, the jobs that are the safest are the ones that you might not expect. They're the ones where we want to connect with each other or else the task is too complex for an AI and a robot. Those are the safe areas. But in the end, at the end of the day, there is nobody's job that is safe. Because at some point, AI will literally be able to do everything better than humans do. There's nothing AI and robots won't be able to do at some point in time. Because they are so efficient and they, are, they can tap data that we can't tap, and they can be so much more productive than human beings. So that is the future we are headed towards. But let me go on and talk about generated worlds. So did you know that Google right now is working on technology to generate entire spaces and virtual worlds just with AI by typing? So, and I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg and, and Meta is working on the same technology. So literally, they have some startups out there right now that are generating very limited virtual worlds, but literally, you can type in text, I want to be in a virtual world under a volcano, you know, and have lava flowing out, and it will create everything, the images and everything. It's fascinating. And in a year, in two years, these are going to be much more sophisticated. We already know, how many of you use Midjourney? Midjourney. Okay, a bunch of you. That's great. Isn't it amazing? It's absolutely amazing. And the more you use it, the more you, uh, you feel creative. Like, I cannot create um, sophisticated art and design, right? But with Midjourney, I can type in a few words and literally come up with an amazing picture. We are entering a world in the future where all of us can be much more creative. 
using AI, but creative in a different way. So no longer is it important to have the skills, like the skills of a graphic artist. Like graphic artists take years to refine their skills with the tools they use. Literally, the, the graphic artists of the future will not be ones who are good at Photoshop and all these other graphic tools. They will be ones who are good at communicating with AI. So right now in Silicon Valley, right now in Silicon Valley, they are hiring people called prompt engineers. Prompt engineers. Prompt engineers, somebody who can come up with keywords, enter it into an AI like ChatGTP, and get a good result. Get the result they want. And do you know what they're paying for these jobs? For a good prompt engineer? They are paying over 300,000 US dollars a year. 300,000, just to type words into an AI. You're not a real engineer. All you do is type words into an AI and get results. But if you can prove to them you can get the results they want, they will hire you. So what I'm saying is that with the, the character generation, the graphics, the writing, the creative people of the future won't necessarily be good writers, right? They won't have, they won't have spent years training writing. They won't necessarily be good artists, but they will be good at getting the AI to give them the results that, that, they, that the company wants for their job. So the job market is going to be changing entirely. So if you are out there and looking for a job, a bit, I tell you, in a, in a few years, your ability to actually manipulate AI will be more important than your education or your training or other experience you may have. This is where the world is headed. Because we are entering a world where human beings, it's not a human being, what a human being alone can do. What matters is what a human being and an AI can do together. That is where we're headed. So generative predictions. So another thing we are experiencing is that generative AI can actually begin to make predictions about the future. Uh, people are using it to find out what will happen. And the more data we give it, the more accurate these predictions become. So there is something that you should think about, and that is I want to share with you a study Facebook did. So Facebook ran a test on their users, and they asked their users, if we show you articles and we show you videos, what articles will you read? What videos will you watch? And their users would tell them, oh, I would read this article on climate change. I would watch that news video. No, I wouldn't watch this other video. I'm not interested in that. That's a waste of time. They would say what they would do. Then Facebook asked the AI, their AI, what articles will these people read? What videos will these people watch? And you know what? They looked at the results, and the AI was right. The human beings did not know themselves as well as the AI knew the humans. So this is, this is really profound. We think we know ourselves. We think, I know myself. I know what articles I would read. I know what videos I would watch. But when I actually go to do it, I'm watching the cat video. 
I'm not watching the video on climate change. I'm reading a fun story. I'm not reading the story that educates me, right? Because the AI looks at what you actually do. It doesn't look at what you want to do or what you want to believe you would do. So when we enter a future, in the future world, we are going to see AI actually know more about what we will do ourselves than we do. So we could even ask the AI, when I'm in this situation, what will I do? And the AI may be able to tell you what you would do in a situation more than you would be able to know yourself. Also, corporations will be using this technology to predict whether you'll buy products, where you'll go travel, all sorts of things. The more data we gather, the better companies and governments will be able to predict our actions in the future. So start to think about that. Uh, if th it, this AI has a huge potential uh, to be used uh, to actually provide us better products and services, but also to manipulate us, to change the choices we would make by knowing what we'll choose given a certain situation. There is, there is other examples of this. Companies like Alibaba and Amazon, they are developing technology uh, right now uh, to help sell more products. And their goal right now, like if you order a product on Amazon in the US, you can get it shipped to you in hours for free, like literally hours. How could they know I wanted to buy this product? Well, they're looking at statistical data and they're saying, we know in this city that so many people are buying this product every day, so we are going to have that product shipped in advance to that city waiting there for them so that it can be delivered. However, in the future, what companies like Alibaba and Amazon want to do, this is their goal. They don't ever want you to buy a product. So Amazon never wants you to make a decision to buy a product. Instead, what they want to do is they want to actually ship the product to you in advance and based on your personal data and mass data from all their customers, they can predict what product you will buy before you even know it. Before you realize you want to buy the product, these big data companies will actually have the data at some point to decide, okay, you're probably gonna buy this product, so we're just gonna ship it to you, and on your doorstep, the product appears, and you open it up, and oh, I need that. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I need it. And if you don't want it, you just put it back on your doorstep, and they take it away. That's the future. And why does Amazon and Alibaba wanna do this, and JD.com? Because it takes the buying decision out of buying. Like, if you never have to decide if you wanna buy a product, you don't shop at another store. They are literally be sending you products. Some of them will be like toilet paper, like before you run out of toilet paper, the toilet paper is there. But other products will be gadgets and things that you, based on your past history, would have purchased. They will just appear on your doorstep. So that is the future of e-commerce and prediction. And prediction goes beyond this. We're gonna literally, on your job, when you're, when you're at work, on a job, you are gonna be using AI to predict what deals will happen for your company before they happen, to predict uh, supply chains, you know, uh, problems with supply chains. On factory floors, they're already using AI to literally predict when machines will break 
so they can repair or, or put in replacement parts before the machines break down and cause disruption. Predictive AI is hugely valuable. On the stock market, you know, there's big trading firms that are using AI all the time to predict the movement of different stocks. So our governments, our financial companies, everything will be powered by AI. And literally, in your personal life, you will be using AI to make better choices. So think about it. If an AI told you right now, you know, you, you want to find a girlfriend or boyfriend, right? And the AI said, I can find you the perfect one. Would you use it? Would you? Or would you waste your time talking to random people? <laughs> you know, random people, right? Why wouldn't you use an AI to find a perfect match and save you all the time and make you happy? People are going to be doing that. When you want to find your next job in the future, all this data is out there about you and your performance on the job, and all this data is out there about other jobs. What if an AI could go and match you with another AI, the hiring AI, and actually find you the perfect job? This is coming in our future. Literally, most of us in the future, we will think it's very normal to go to the AI and say, ah, should I leave this job? Is there a better job out there? And then the AI will go out there and say, actually, you could be earning 10% more if you switch jobs right now. Or no, you should stay at this job. It's really good for you. You should stay another year. And then if the AI says you should move, you would ask the AI, what good jobs would there be for me? This is my dream. This is my career path. And the AI will literally plot out the steps you need to get to, to advance your career and guide you along the way. We will be using AI in all aspects of our lives, in our, in our personal lives to find people we connect with, in our business lives to find new jobs. We will have AI managers in companies that literally manage people. And the AI managers will be better than human beings. Why? Because they'll never get angry at you, like a boss, right? They'll, they'll, they'll always, your boss is often busy and you can't ask your boss questions, right? Either you're afraid to ask them a question or they're just too busy. But an AI boss, you could always go to and ask a question. They will always be there for you. So we will have AI implemented in all sorts of different aspects in companies. And if you don't believe me, this is already happening. People are using sophisticated AI right now in their hiring and trying to figure out if an employee would be a good fit with the company, if they will stay with the company, how they will perform in the company, and it's only going to get bigger and deeper. So we are at the very beginning. You know, I, I will tell you right now, there has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There are so many opportunities out there. I'm giving you some ideas, but there are so many opportunities out there to take AI and actually implement it and create entirely new systems uh, for business, for business and our personal lives. All these products that I'm talking about will be here in five years, and we will be using them, and we will think it's normal. We will think, you know, companies will think it's normal to have AI performing certain tasks. We will think it's normal to go to AI and consult AI whenever we're making an important decision, and even for small decisions. Where should I eat tonight? You know, I want to plan my next vacation. All of this. And what I want to ask you right now is, is this a good thing? Is it a good thing? Every coin has two sides. Yeah, every coin has two sides. Exactly right. 
it's a good thing because we'll, be, we'll find a better job. We might find a better boyfriend or girlfriend, husband and wife. We might, you know, be more productive on our job. But it's also a bad thing because we are delegating our humanity to the AI. We are basically saying, I should no longer, I can't make decisions as well as an AI. So I would be better off having the AI make the decisions for me. And this, this, will, this shift will be very subtle at first, right? We're already starting to do it in a little way, but as AI becomes more and more powerful, we will be delegating more of our autonomy, our decision-making to artificial intelligence. So because it's so useful, because it's so good at doing what it does, we will be afraid to make decisions on our own, right? We will be afraid. We'll be like, oh, I can't make that decision. I'll probably make the wrong choice. I'm going to ask the AI. We're, you know, so AI will start to lead us, not because it's this evil force, right? Like some people, Elon Musk says, AI is going to take over as an evil force, right? And destroy humanity. No, what it's going to do is seduce humanity. It's going to seduce us because it's so good at helping us. And we're like, okay, do this for me, do that for me. Do, and before we know it, it's do it, you know, every decision, important decision we're making is, is the AI is doing it. So what comes next with AI? So right now I've, I've given you a lot of ideas about there about AI, but really where AI gets interesting is when we connect AI to our physical bodies, our physical bodies. So, who here wears an Apple Watch or a smartwatch? A lot of you, right? So that smartwatch is gathering data on you. Huawei. Yeah, Huawei, you got a Huawei one. Of course, it's China. Uh, <laughs> so, so you have a Huawei watch. Um, you know, they, there's a game maker out there that is now using uh, AI and, and feedback from your body to change the game as you play. So it's a horror game, it's a scary game. And what they want to do is they want the game, some people like a lot of blood and scariness, some people only need a little, right? So they want to optimize the experience for each person. So we are entering a future where it can measure your heart rate, your pulse, and other vital signs, and actually adapt the content to your personal likes and dislikes. In the future, who knows what a brain-computer interface is? A brain-computer interface. So have you heard of Neuralink, Elon Musk putting a chip in the brain, right? Those brain-computer interfaces are very sophisticated, but they have brain-computer interfaces now that you can just put on your head and it can measure certain things like your concentration. Well, we are going into a future where we will be developing more and more sophisticated brain-computer interfaces that you don't need to drill a hole in your head. You can literally just wear them like a wearable, and they can measure your brain waves. And we will start to use this technology to actually change the content we interact with. And I want to tell you about this. So there's brain-computer interfaces. There are also other technologies that can literally tell the computer about us. They have a technology with AI that can literally analyze your personality. Your personality, are you 
an anxious person? Are you a calm person? Are you a neurotic person? It can tell, the, it can tell what you are just by how you move your eyes. Just by how you move your eyes. It's unbelievable. Like, how can it tell my personality by how it moves the eyes? Well, there is a correlation between how you move your eyes and your personality. And the AI can match that at a very high accuracy. So we are going to see AI in robots that literally looks at us and knows our personality. And they have other AI. They've developed AI at MIT that can literally bounce radio waves off your body and tell your emotions. We don't need a brain-computer interface to do this. It can do it today. It can tell whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether you're angry. And what this means is that as we interact with AI on our computers, on our phones, and robots, that that AI will start to understand who we are at a very deep level, at a level even better than we understand each other. So like we can look at each other and their expression on the face, and we're always trying to understand uh, what another human is feeling, right? Well, the AI can see patterns much better than our eyes, and our brain can process them. So in the future, AI, vis visual AI, will literally look at people, their micro expressions, and start to understand their personality and their emotions. And so these AIs, whether it's a robot companion at home, oh, the robot companion comes up to you and says, oh, I see you've had a hard day. Like, it'll know it right away just looking at you, you know? Oh, what can I do for you? Or it can see that you, you, know, you want to have fun, you want to be playful. These robots will be in our stores, they'll be in our workplace, they'll be in our phones, and we will be interacting with AI that feels more and more like human. But not only a human, a human who truly understands us, who truly knows who we are. That is fascinating, right? It's also a little scary. Because, as I said, the, we can do this technology today. This isn't something far off in the future. This technology is being developed right now. These AIs will literally seem like human beings, but they will be machines. So they will not really care about us, although it will appear that they really understand and care about us. So these AIs, we are entering a world where we will have simulated in human intelligence that appears to be conscious and appears to be aware of us and who we are and what we need when it's really not. Okay, experiential AI. We are going to be taking the same technology and actually creating new experiences that we have never imagined before. And let me give you some examples of this. Right now, when all of us watch a movie, when we watch a movie, we, we all see the same movie. Whether it's on Netflix or some other service, we are watching the same movie. In the future, this content that we consume will be dynamic. The content will literally be changing for each individual. So if you watch a movie on your computer, the AI will be getting data from your smartwatch, maybe a brain-computer interface, maybe Yes? Okay, it's back on, yeah. I did it, I did it. So it would be, you know, literally the, the webcam on your laptop 
will be able to give it a massive amount of information about you, and as you watch the movie, it'll be interpreting the data from you and actually changing the experience. So for example, let's say you are watching a movie and you like the romantic scenes. It will extend those romantic scenes because generative AI, as I said before, we are getting to the point where we can generate video and content in real time. So we will have five, 10 years from now, content that's generated as you consume it. And if you, like, if you don't want a lot of violence in your movie, the AI may detect this and make the violent scenes much shorter. But if your husband or your wife loves the violence in action, it'll expand those scenes. So all of us will be getting very customized content based on who we are and our biology and our brain, the data we're giving the AI, plus the past. That is where we're headed. Now, brain connectivity. So I see this as the next big revolution. So we have gone through many, many revolutions in connectivity. Like if you go back in time uh, to uh, our early days, human beings, we were connected in small tribes, right? We lived in tribes. And the way we connected with each other was we would sit around a campfire and we would tell stories about our day. We'd tell stories about the world and share those stories. Then as humanity evolved, we began to group together in bigger groups in cities. We developed writing. We could actually transmit these stories through writing, through art, through pictures. All of these were a way of communicating. And then a huge change happened when we invented the printing press. Because then we could mass distribute information around the world. So literally, the printing press caused a whole upheaval in Europe, right? The Protestant Reformation, you know, the decline of the Catholic Church, the splintering of religion. Because suddenly, anybody could take an idea and disseminate it in a mass way. Then came radio, then television. Then the internet, all of these have been profound changes in how we communicate. Well, what's the next big change? The next big change is honestly, when we use AI to connect our brains to the internet, when we do this, everything will change. Everything about how we communicate and how we think of ourselves will change. Why is this so important? I will tell you. First of all, uh, uh, brain-computer interfaces uh, what they do is they, right now, in the laboratory, we can put a chip in somebody's head. And they are doing this at Brown University and many other universities. Put a chip in somebody's head, and literally, the person with the chip in their brain can control a wheelchair and drive themselves around. And the people who are getting these chips, they're paralyzed. They're completely paralyzed. So they can't even move their hands, anything. All they can do is blink their eyes. But with the chip in their brain, they can drive themselves around. They can control a robotic arm and feed themselves. They can even communicate on their iPad or their phone. They can send messages directly from their brain. We can do that today in the laboratory. In the future, though, we're going to develop devices just as powerful that you don't need a chip in your brain. You can literally wear them, like a little earbud. You can wear them in your head. It will read your brain waves and allow for two-way communication. So these products, some of them, are already on the market. You might not know it, but you can buy a brain-computer interface on Amazon for a few hundred dollars. It's called the Muse. They have several of them out there. But 
with this technology is very limited. So today, a brain-computer interface that you put on your head can do a few things very well. It can tell you if you are concentrating or not concentrating. It can tell you if you are relaxed or your brain is very active. It can allow you to turn off and on a light or do simple things, but it cannot do more than that. However, as soon as this technology gets to the level of what we can do now with brain implants, it is going to change everything. Because they have done studies at UC San Francisco, the University of California, San Francisco, where literally they have put a person on an, under an fMRI machine. Do you know fMRI? So an fMRI reads the blood flow in your brain. It literally is a machine that scans your brain and reads the blood flow. It's a very expensive, very big machine. But using that machine, they can not only, without a chip in your brain, they can today, they can tell what you are thinking. They can actually extract the language. You know, we all talk to ourselves in our head. They can extract that language from your head to a digital world. It's pretty amazing. They can do that today. They also, with an fMRI machine, they can now extract images, literal images, video. Like when you imagine something in your mind, they can reproduce that on a computer. Today, they can do that. So we can see where the technology is going. This is a big machine, right? But the first computers were big machines. They are going to miniaturize this technology, and it is going to be available at some point in the future where we can literally extract images and what we're thinking from our brains and directly communicate with the internet. And then they're also going to develop technology where we can download that. And AI is critical in this, right? Because AI is what takes all those patterns, the blood flow in your brain or the brain waves, and actually allows us to interpret them and understand what they mean. And as neuroscience advances, as this technology advances, we are going to be getting to the point where brain-computer interfaces are more useful than a phone. Because right now, using a phone is very uh, time-consuming. You have to pull, you have to type, it's very slow. Soon, our brains will be connected to the internet, and literally, every, all the data in the world, we can just pull it down on demand. Pull down data. We can interact with these AIs that we have built in, in the cloud, and literally use them to extend our own intelligence and our own understanding of the world. And what goes further than that is we will literally be able to transfer information from one brain to another. So we haven't done this yet. This is still science fiction, but, it's, but it is in the realm of possibility that we can literally take not just images, not just words in our brains, but potentially memories and transfer them from human to human. So you can imagine going to your grandparents and say, can I download your memories? And downloading your grandparents' memories. You could go to your husband or wife, and they were out late, and say, can I check your brain to see what you're doing? <laughs> Why are you home so late? <laughs> you know, it's going to be a very weird world. And imagine all of the signals in the brains, they're, they're literally chemical interactions and electric signals. If we can reproduce those, literally everything that goes into our brain is a signal. All our visual data are just signals, electric signals. Our audio, it's just patterns that we interpret. 
you know, our touch, again, it's just patterns that we interpret. We can literally start to feed into our brain other people's patterns. So potentially, emotions like happiness and sadness could literally be patterns that we can pull from other people. So you could like bond with your wife or your husband, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You could, in the future, potentially feel their happiness. What would that be like? Like right now, none of us can feel anybody else's happiness. We can't. Like we think we can, we feel happy together with them, but we don't feel their happiness, we feel our happiness. In the future, we may be able to feel somebody else's happiness. Like this is going to totally transform what it means to be human. Plus, we can start to get data and share data between our brains and between AI. So literally, all these machines out there that we are building, we'll, we, we could literally inhabit, like let's say you're paralyzed, you could literally uh, connect directly to a robot which has sensors on its hands, which has visual cameras on its eyes, and you can literally uh, be inside that robot and feel everything that that robot feels. All of this will be possible as we move into the future. And it's not as far away as some people think. So augmented existence. The next thing I want to talk about is all of us are going to be living in this weird world that is a combination of the digital and the physical. So right now in the world, uh, we, all of us in this room are experiencing the same room. But in the future, where we have augmented reality glasses, or even better, augmented reality brain-computer interfaces, our, what we're seeing in any given situation will be unique to us, depending on what we've chosen to impose upon the world. So the physical and the digital will be merging. And we will be literally moving into what I call a multimodal reality. A reality that uh, is a combination of physical and digital and is unique to different people. So you, me and Professor Zhang, we might synchronize our worlds. So literally, you may be seeing this world, this stadium, in, in your own unique way. Like you may have the, 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 the walls painted green and rainbows on the ceiling and, the, and you know, all these other digital information flowing down the walls as you're listening to my lecture. And if I synchronize with you, I would then see what you see. But every individual would be able to have their own overlay to the world that they're walking through their own persona, their own uh, reality. And, and it's going to be a very interesting experience as we enter a, an augmented future where we are both together and separate. So that concludes <laughs> my talk. Um, you know, if any of you want to reach out to me in the future, just go to Founderspace. You can email me right from Founderspace and contact me. I love young people, I love entrepreneurs. But before I go further, I wanted to open this up to your questions. So questions that you have, and they can be about what we've talked about today, or they can be about anything, startups, business, whatever you have, uh, your questions. Hello, Captain Hoffman. Yes. Uh, one, one question for you. Uh, currently, some university in Hong Kong, UK, they have banned the uh, ChatGDP uh, by student. 
Yes. And uh, invent to prevent the students using it to do the homework, essay, or other paperwork. What's your opinion on this issue? Well, first of all, good luck. Uh, you know, we all know you can get around those bans, right? Yeah. They can say it's banned, but people can get around the bans. Right? And, you know, every, anybody can use it uh, that wants to use it. So the idea of banning it, it it's, it's, it's not possible for a university, let's say, to ban it. They could say they're banning it, and right now they're working on technology that can actually detect if an essay was written by ChatGPT, right? If an, and they can detect that and penalize the student. But so far, they can't get those accurate enough. They aren't accurate enough. Because, and I'll tell you why, because ChatGTP is literally pulling essays, all this information, from stuff written by other humans, right? And reassembling it. So it's not like the AI wrote it. The AI is just taking the data that was written by humans that's out there on the internet and giving it back in a different form. So it's really hard to detect. OpenAI says they're working on a way of watermarking it, but I don't see how you can watermark text, right? I don't see, uh, it's going to be extremely hard to do this, uh, to detect. You can't ban it until you detect it. And if you even have a 5% error rate, that's too high. That means one out of 20 students is going to be penalized for having written their own essay and the, 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 the machine told them this was written by ChatGPT when it wasn't. It's too high. You have to get it close to 100% accuracy in order to use these tools to detect it in order for them to be useful. So um, my feeling is this, and this is my real feeling. Uh, when I was young, people were afraid of the calculator. Remember the calculator? Something we almost never use now. But a calculator, people are like, people are going to get stupid because they're just going to use a calculator. They're not going to learn real math. You know, people were really afraid of that. Um, and then computers, people were afraid of computers. Oh, they're going to do, you know, computers, they're going to use word processors. Isn't that going to be horrible? Nobody will know how to handwrite, right? Because you can do everything now without doing handwriting. Won't that be a horrible world? Well, let me tell you. Uh, we survived, right? And in the future, it's not going to be banning these tools won't be the answer. The, because the answer is the most innovative people in the world are going to be using ChatGTP to, on their job, in the workplace, to get stuff done. And they're going to be using these AI tools. And if you ban them, you're actually hurting their education. We have to recognize that we live in a world with these technologies and that people are going to have to use them effectively. So what we're going to have to do is a couple things. Number one, if we're going to write a written essay, we're going to say, yeah, a lot of students are going to use that. Who can use it to write the best essay, right? Who can use whatever tool they want to write the best essay? I don't care. The other way is we may go back to a Socratic system, like Socrates, where we actually Professors have dialogues with students. Instead of having them write an essay, they sit them down right in front of them, and they have discussions about the topic to see if the student really understands the topic at a deep level. So both of these are good, right? We're going to use AI to write our, our essays and our articles and do our research. We're going to do that. We shouldn't be banning it. But we should also be using maybe old-fashioned ways to see if people have really absorbed the information or they're just having an AI do all the work for them. Because what matters in the end is that the student understands it, not that they wrote an essay, right? It doesn't matter. 
It matters, have they grasped the concepts? Are they creative at thinking? Do they have new original ideas of their own? This is where we have to be thinking. So good, great question, yes. So my question is, do you have some, uh, what in your mind, what advantages and disadvantages of our student entrepreneur or students who are interested in innovation and entrepreneur to start to, to make a startup. What your advice for us? And you know uh, there are some difference in our environment. Uh, education is very important for us, maybe more than in, in your area. So Yes. So this is my question. Thank you. Okay. So if you want First of all, if you want to be an entrepreneur, the first thing I want you to do is think about something that you want to change in the world that you would be really proud of, right? Like if I could make that change, that would be amazing. And that would be of great benefit to society, to business, to people's lives. So start to think in that direction. Not just what can I make the most money at, right? You really, uh, I want the young people out there because look, I described this technology, this very powerful technology. We're going to need ways to use this technology responsibly, right? We're going to need young people in the world because it's your future to, to figure this out. So start thinking about bigger issues than just how can I make money quickly. Start thinking about where is the world headed? What will we be doing with this technology? What are the good things we can put, put do with this technology that really make the world a better place? And also, what are the dangers of these technologies? And how can we develop systems that actually help people not, pe people who want to use this technology for bad purposes, uh, prevents them from doing that? So think about that. Number two is, I have always found that surround yourself with really, you know, there's certain people that you talk to, and when you talk to them, all of a sudden, ideas start coming out of your head, right? And you get really excited. And, and that collaboration, that interaction between you priority. If you seek out those people, and you find that you together want to make change in the world in a good way, all of a sudden, surrounding yourself with really creative, smart people, and going down the path together, that's where you'll have the biggest impact. Because you're never going to have the biggest impact alone. Like, the world is too complex to do any of these. You know, nobody, Elon Musk likes to believe he built these companies by himself, but he didn't, right? He built these companies by inspiring and bringing on board a lot of super smart people, right? That's what you need to do in your own small way. And, and I, I tell entrepreneurs this over and over and over again. 80% of your success will depend on the people you surround yourself by. Not by the idea you start with, uh, not by um, the education you've had, but by the people you surround yourself by, with, and you collaborate with. If you focus on that, uh, you, will go, you will find doors start opening up for you. And when you focus on people, don't pick people just like yourself. Try to get people with different experience, different backgrounds, uh, different, like some might be good in technology, some might be good in art, some might be good in business. So put yourself around these people. Some of them you can collaborate with, others you can use as advisors and mentors. You know, you're running the lab there. Really important, like uh, engaging with the accelerator, uh, Dr. Jen's accelerator, and other professors seeking advice from them. Like, go to them with your ideas. 
Talk to them. Go to other smart people. Don't hide your ideas. Don't be worried about somebody stealing your ideas. Because I'll tell you, any idea you have in your head is already out there. It's in the world. It's already, I guarantee it, there's how many, seven billion people on the planet? A lot of them are really smart. They're thinking of it. The ones who win are the ones who execute on the ideas in the right way. They aren't the ones who have the ideas. They're the ones who get the other people involved, lead them on a path, and take that journey together. So, and the more smart people you can pull into your circle, right, the better the chance you will be able to take that idea and make it a reality. So that's my advice. Okay, I will uh, use this uh, ter term MAS, M-A-A-S, model as a service. Uh, yes. I have heard that one company, uh, some companies has used the customized, very customized uh, mass yes. to, to, to guarantee their efficiency. So how would you explain the phenomena that even though OpenAI has tried to uh, you know, come up with that sort of model, lots of companies still survive. Small companies still survive. Okay, so... Uh it's, large language models have proven to be extremely powerful, right? Because uh, they can do such a variety of tasks. But there are still specific data sets that companies own uh, in certain domains that aren't included in the large language models. And that is why these companies survive. Because let's say you're doing manufacturing data, you know, the large language model isn't going to have that data. Right? They, the large language model is essentially pulling a lot of publicly available data from the internet. But there's a lot of data that's proprietary, that's owned by a corporation, a government institution, you know, it could be a hospital. This data is extremely valuable at solving problems. Take a hospital data, right? If it's treatment for lung cancer, and certain hospitals specialize in lung cancer, and they have this massive amount of high-quality data, that's not going to be an OpenAI's thing. They may not want to give it to OpenAI. Like you said, so there, there are other services out there where they can take that data, they can build models around that data, and they can provide services, and that's still a very viable model that will not change. So um, there's, there's two sets, right? There's the large language models that are kind of general purpose, for everybody out there, and then there are specific, very targeted data sets for solving really hard problems in certain domains, and entrepreneurs can definitely build businesses around those that are quite distinct from what OpenAI is doing or Google is doing. Uh, I am Dan Wong from medical school, and yes. I'm working on brain science and using the technology of MI. And I, I heard you list the series of application of AI, and but in most of the cases they act as a survey. They do what what we want to let them to do for us. But if there's some possible that someday it might be manipulate the emotion and feelings when some physical treatment. Okay, so magnetic. you're talking about a, a treatment to change people's emotions? Emotion and feelings. And Through a brain-computer interface? Yeah, but not a... Uh, I want to ask how to define the threshold to use the technology because it can either be used to treatments such as the depression and something like oh, that. Oh, yes. But in another way, it might, for some people, do some business to manipulate others' emotions. Right. So... We're, we're going to, 
Yes, we're going to be, you know, right now we don't really understand the human brain that well, right? We're just beginning to figure out yeah. with neuroscience how the brain works, why some people are depressed, why others have disorders, you know, Alzheimer's disease, all these different issues, um, also personality disorders. In the future, um, we can use this technology definitely to actually administer care to people uh, who need it. Like you're suffering from depression, there may be a way to stim there are already deep brain stimulation that they have that can cure it can help with Parkinson's disease and things like that. We may have other ways of altering the brain uh, through stimulation or through drugs that actually uh, change people's moods. But what you're raising is an ethical issue. Yeah. So could the same technology be used to manipulate people? Yeah. And the answer is absolutely. So like if Elon Musk asked you today to get a chip in your brain, how many people would? Elon Musk, he's, he's a happy guy. Um, <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't either. Because literally, you have to, we don't know what they, they can do, right? Um, uh, when they put a chip in your brain, first of all, they have access to your brain, to your uh, private thoughts. And it, how can we define the threshold for purple use, especially for the entrepreneurs and the technology, the well, scientists? This, that's a great question. Because we don't know. Like if somebody is suffering a, a severe depression, or they have a brain disorder, or they're paralyzed, getting one of these devices can, can be, transform their lives. But if it's an average person who isn't doing that, should we allow people to read other people's minds? Should we allow these devices to actually potentially influence them? Like these devices may allow us to dial up our happiness, you know? Uh, like we could actually, on our phone, control the device and make ourselves feel happier or make ourselves concentrate better or help us learn faster, all sorts of different things. These will be great advantages, but at the same time, these devices could actually be used to start to alter how we think, how we respond to things, and even how we feel about stuff, right? And as we know, human beings are driven by our emotions, right? We feel something and we do it. We actually, the rational part of our brain, uh, the, you know. The, 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 the PFC. Yeah, the frontal cortex, right? Uh, a lot of times that is just an afterthought. That is responding to emotions that we already have and that are welling up in our subconscious and then we are rationalizing it. So we could literally, a person could be completely manipulated by a brain computer interface or ad other advanced devices uh, in the future. We need to be extremely careful about that. So we need to be careful on two fronts. One, that corporations and people that don't have our best interests in mind don't manipulate us. And number two, maybe that we don't manipulate ourselves. Because we could become addicted to these technologies and actually use them inappropriately on ourselves like we do drugs, right? So uh, all of these issues, what, what the problem is, these devices are going to be coming onto the market. They are going to be pushed by corporations who are profit-driven, right? So a corporation is going to want to have mass distribution of these things. At the same time, our governments don't want to stifle innovation. So they're not going to want to be left behind by telling people you can't release these devices. So we're going to have, as a society, we're going to have to figure out how do we protect people from our own inventions. And it's going to be very difficult because already 
we can see that a lot of technologies are being abused, right, on the internet. Um, and how do you do that in a way that allows people to thrive and allows innovation to progress? <laughs> I don't know what that said. But th that's the core issue. And we don't have a solution right now. Listening to your uh, lecture is like watching a very charming and fascinating movie. Oh, thank you. And it's super <laughs> exciting about it. And I'm Li Shuo, a PhD, uh, a PhD student in optical engineering. And uh, I'm now very prof so I'm now po very professional in the field of artificial intelligence. So I feel a little bit powerless and uh, distant from ChatGPT, this technique. So uh, besides making good use of ChatGPT, what other suggestions do you give us to reduce my anxious feeling? Thank you. <laughs> so don't feel too anxious. You're probably more informed than most people <laughs> about this technology. Most of the world doesn't really understand it or know it. So you may feel behind but you're in a, one of the top universities in the world. Uh, you're surrounded by people who are talking about these technologies. I tell you, you're in the 1% of people who know the most, even though you feel anxious. So don't feel anxious, but one thing you can do, and I encourage everybody to do this, be curious. So put aside a time of your day to teach yourself. I mean, they have great professors in this university, amazing, they're giving you a great amount of information, but you have to also train yourself and teach yourself. The most important thing you can do in life is to always be educating yourself. And when you find something, don't do it because you feel anxious, do it because you're curious, because you want to know more. Um, don't worry about other people knowing more than you, because most of the people won't. But you go deep on these, use the applications, start to figure them out, start to imagine what they could do. See if you can use some of them in doing your schoolwork, even though your professors don't want you to, <laughs> and, and, and doing your hobbies and figuring out, and then, then that anxiety will go away. Like even me, right? I'm, I'm a busy person. I'm traveling all the time. I never have time to keep up on this technology, and I have to give talks on it. And literally every day, new technologies are coming out. Like there's auto G GPT, which I didn't mention, which are intelligent agents out there. There's all this new technology that's coming out literally every week. It's impossible for any of us to keep up. Um, so just do your best and enjoy it. <laughs> I see, thank you. And another small question. If, if our robotic companion have some feeling of like lazy, uh, your robotic uh, girlfriend don't want to do the clean things. How can we deal with the situation? <laughs> You're already worried about your robotic girlfriend not cleaning the no, house? No, no, I have girlfriend. I have girlfriend. I, I don't want to have it. But uh, once I know we you have, have it, a girlfriend, yeah, 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 yeah. in the thank future, you. your robotic girlfriend won't do what you want. <laughs> because it has its own feelings. Well, let's talk about that. We may be developing robots that actually say no to us. These robots may be modeled on, on real people. They may be grumpy at times. You know, all our robots don't have to be pleasing us all the time. So there are many different ways to create these robots. Is that a problem? No, it might actually be a benefit. The question comes is if we make these machines smart enough, will they be conscious? right? Will they start to demand their own rights? If they are learning from our data, from human data, from the human brain, if we are modeling them after the human brain, at a certain point, uh, will they start to think of themselves 
as human and act like human? Well, this is a, an interesting question because on one hand, we, I know we can create a robot that can perfectly simulate a human being at some point in the future. We will be able to create AI that you will not be able to tell the difference because it will be grumpy at times, it'll be happy at times, it'll do everything that humans do. But um, will this robot really feel like we feel? And the answer is very simple. We will never know. Because we can never get inside the AI. Even now, AI, uh, machine learning, it's a black box. We don't know, even computer scientists don't know how it comes up with the answers it does. They just know it does. We will never be able to go in and really understand if that machine has developed a consciousness. Now, it's my belief uh, that uh, it won't matter. Because if a robot acts just like a human, does ever, you know, and you cannot tell it apart from a human, does it matter if it's conscious? It doesn't matter because in your life, I could be a robot. I could be a robot right now. Like, this could be the future, and you might not know if I'm a robot or a human, but if I act like a human, you're going to treat me like a human. And that's the world we're going to be entering. Uh, it won't really matter because, we, just like I said, even with these crude robots, the dating robot, uh, the dating AI, people start to fall in love with their dating AI. And it's really primitive. Imagine when it's much more sophisticated. It, all of our emotions and how we're biologically programmed to interact will be transferred to these machines. And we, again, an even bigger danger than the brain, or as big as a brain-computer interface, is that companies or individuals would be able to use these machines to manipulate us. Because the machines will actually be machines and very smart, and we're going to be entering a weird world in the future where we're going to have to figure out how to deal with this. How does society deal with these machines, whether they're conscious or not, that literally function in society just like people, or maybe even hyper-intelligent people? How do we treat them? How do they interact with us? What, what should their role be? Should we limit them? All of these questions are open. What do you think is the best uh, productive uh, structure or relationship to, di to, to distribute all the other uh, wealth and resources in the future because you know if all the humans don't need to work how the wealth is going to be allocated for example i'm sure you have noticed uh, a project called WorldCoin, which is also created by sam altman the founder of OpenAI, and they're they're working on a concept called ubi the the universal basic income uh, basically they want to give uh, money to all the people in the world to to make sure they have uh, they live a decent life and this is a really mind-blowing uh, concept and I, I really want to know your comments on it and some somebody even says web3 is uh, the, you know can, can feed the gap which is the industry i'm working on so yeah thank you first of all uh yes we are going to be entering a future where large segments of the population will be out of work right it won't happen right away but it will happen. Over, uh, given enough time, uh, we can already see, you know, self-driving cars, every, every, every DD driver, every Uber driver, every truck driver will eventually be replaced. These technologies, you know, can replace journalists, artists, doctors, lawyers. It's going to happen. So universal basic income is the idea where we have society where government basically gives everybody an income. And the question is, uh, Number one, is this a good thing? 
Well, I think it's not only a good thing, it's a necessary thing. Because you can't have large numbers of people displaced. But the other question is, where does this money come from, right? How do we generate that universal basic income? You know, will we wind up in a future where literally the governments own the AIs, right? And therefore, they uh, get the profits and redistribute the profits? Or will the governments tax corporations that own the AIs to actually redistribute the profits? Or will we continue with capitalism as we have it now? The problem with that is that more and more people will be unemployed and a few people will be making enormous sums of money, trillions of dollars, you know, while everybody else is out of work. We can't have a society like that. It's not beneficial. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting. You know, Marxism, Karl Marx, right? He imagined his utopian future, right? The worker's paradise where everybody's paid equally. But he imagined it in the wrong way, right? He imagined that uh, it, in a way where the workers would just love their jobs and they would work in communal fashion and we'd redistribute the wealth. We found out that that was very inefficient. Now we're coming to a point, though, where our machines will be so powerful that we won't have to work. And honestly, I believe uh, most of us won't be unhappy. So right now, all, most people in this room identify uh, who you are. Your identity is tied to your work. Because the first question we ask people is, what do you do? Right? What is your job? And you feel like if you're successful at your job, you're a successful person. But when we get to the point where AI and robots are literally able to do all of our, most of our jobs better than us, it won't matter that, you know, we won't think, well, a robot can do it better than us. Why should I even do that job? So people will end up focusing on other things. We will end up, we will not be bored. Because let me tell you, we, like right now, if I had free time, I have a hundred projects I could work on. Some of them are art projects, some of them are traveling, some of them are uh, social organizations that I want to be part of. People's identity, who we think we are and our value in society, will be uh, focused on different things and will be focused on more around groups of people and how we interact with these groups and what we do with those groups of people, or it will be in these virtual worlds that we create where games and other things, where we have an identity tied to those and our achievements in those. So it's gonna be a very different life that we're living. Um, the question is, you, back to your first question is, I think people will be happy because people will always find a way. When we were hunter-gatherers, we didn't work that much. When we were in, in our early state and prehistory, we didn't work that much because most people could just gather enough food was around that they might work a couple hours a day and the rest of the day they would socialize. We're going to be going back to that, right? And we're also going to be going, hopefully, into a world where there's an abundance of, of, of wealth, right? We're able to create products very cheaply. AI is able to do all the hard work and we're just able to live off the benefits. So it may be like going back to our primitive roots where we get to, where we start thinking about our society and activities that we do together, and those become who we are and what is meaningful to us. And hopefully, our governments will be led responsibly so that they will do this in a way uh, that, uh, th where people are treated fairly. 
right, where all, where all people are treated justly and fairly, we have to see, because it can go either direction, right? Um, but it's your generation, you students, who this transformation is going to happen in your lifetime, right? So you, many of you in the room here now, are going to be shaping this transformation. And that's why these discussions are so important. Because you need to start to be, if you want a mission, like how do we get there, right? And how do we change society so it's a smooth transition to that point? Uh, but good question. My question is, are, are there any, uh, any ways to uh, make more jobs? Okay, I'll answer your question. So throughout history, every time new technologies come by, we have lost some jobs, but we've created even more jobs. There are more people on the, in the world now than there ever were, and most of the people are working, right? Billions and billions of people have jobs. So technology has historically always created more jobs than we've lost. So certain professions go away. We no longer need those, but new ones come up. Do I see this trend continuing? In the near term, yes. Absolutely yes. I know in China right now, there's uh, high unemployment with young people. Uh, but in the US right now, extremely low unemployment. Like, we can't get enough people. Like, we, we literally, in the United States, our unemployment record is at, at record lows. There aren't enough people. Um, in, in countries like Japan, uh, you know, the population is aging very quickly. They don't have enough young people to fill all the jobs. They literally do not. So in the short term, the China thing is temporary, right? This, this dip is temporary. It's going to go back up. The employment rate's going to go back up. In the short term, we're not going to see mass unemployment. That will not happen. That's still 10 or more years out, right? It's a ways out. AI has to get, we're still going to be creating a lot more jobs. It, the world is going to be much more productive. However, the nature of work is going to change. And that's one of the things I, one of the things I want to leave you with. The future of work is not humans doing work alone. It's humans and computers doing work together, even more so than we do now. And particularly, it's human-computer symbiosis. Symbiosis means the, the humans and computers doing, accomplishing a task together as if they are one, dependent upon each other. So a, a, a student, when I was in Shenzhen, at Shenzhen University, a student asked me a really interesting question. I'm going to leave it on this. He said, can computers be creative? Right? Can computers be innovative? Can AI be innovative like human beings? Some of us believe an AI could never be as innovative as a human being. I don't believe so. AI can be absolutely as creative and innovative as any person. And the reason is because if you look at AIs, what they're literally doing is what our brains do. They are looking at, except they are looking at all the data in the world. So for those of you who've used Midjourney or Dolly or Stable Diffusion to create art, you can see the AI can literally look at all the digital art in the world and you can type in uh, what you want. You can say, I want to create a golden rabbit on a beach with the waves crashing. And that golden rabbit will appear on the beach with the waves crashing. You could say, no, I want this in the style of Monet, Mon the artist Monet, and boom, it'll create a version in the style of Monet. Now, it'll be a picture that Monet never could have created and never would have created as an artist. 
yet it looks like something that he created. And it's beautiful and new and original. Well, how was this picture created? It was created by a human being interacting with the AI, right? It wasn't created by the AI alone. It was the human being interacting. And the human could look at that picture of the rabbit on the beach and say, I want the rabbit holding an umbrella. Boom! It created a rabbit holding an umbrella. So what is that art? That art is the AI and the human interaction together. And what did the human and AI do? They not only created a new image, a new picture, but they created more data. That digital image is now part of the data set for the next generation of AIs. So humans and AI interacting will create more data, rich data, which feeds a loop, right? Which makes the AI and the human even more productive and more creative. So innovation, you cannot separate human innovation from AI innovation. They are not separate. They are part of the same system. The AI is only innovative because it's drawing upon all the innovative artists out there and writers out there and business people out there who put data on the internet. That is what is making the AI so innovative. And then a human interacting with that creates something new, creating more data. And this cycle is why these AIs are gonna be so profoundly impactful on society in changing our jobs, because it is, the AI is an extension of our creativity and our innovation. It's, an, it's part of us, and all of us will be using this in the future. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You can help us create more great content by subscribing and sharing. Also, if you wanna access our online startup program, our investor network, and our entrepreneur resources, just come to founderspace.com.